right, good to see everybody. I'm Pastor Andrew Gross. I'm the associate pastor here, and I have the privilege of uh, getting to help us uh, march on in the book of Deuteronomy. If you haven't been with us, um, we are in the middle, uh, actually we're almost at the end of a study of the book of Deuteronomy, and that's part of a bigger series we're doing, a study on the whole Torah, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And uh, so uh, we are almost almost at an end, and we're really excited about what we have coming on after that, uh, but um, yeah, we're going to try to finish strong with, uh, with the Deuteronomy. So today we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 23. If you could uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter, starting in chapter 23, we're going to go through t- verse, uh, chapter 26, and uh, have those open and ready, because we're going to spend quite a bit of time in the actual uh, in the actual text. So let's see if this got that thing going. So Deuteronomy. Next week, by the way, if you want to get really ready for the sermon, um, we're going to be uh, reading Deuteronomy chapters 27 through 31, and uh, where uh, um, Moses comes in uh, to the end of his message, or towards the end of his message. And uh, that's a very exciting passage that we'll, uh, we'll dig into next week. But but, uh, but now we're, we're wrapping up these chapters, chapters 23 through 26. So I want to remind us of, uh, we, we've talked about this uh, throughout the, the series of messages, but I want to remind us a little bit more about the purpose of the laws in the Torah. It's very helpful. It, it's easy. If, 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 if any of you have, have done what we've been asking everyone to do, which is to actually read through the Torah yourself, uh, you may have discovered yourself getting caught up or trapped in sort of the minutia and the little details. And why is this law here? And that law is weird. And that law offends me. And why are this? Why is this here? So, just a reminder of some of the bigger purpose of the law. So, uh, if you remember, there's a there's an external purpose to this law, to these laws, and that external purpose is to incite the other nations to admiration to jealousy even, and ultimately to the worship of the one true God. In uh, Early on in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 4, verse 6, it says this, Moses says to them, observe the laws carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. So, or, and the nations, they will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? So that was one big purpose uh, that the nations around them and those who visited them would see their behavior, see how they interacted with one another, see how they obeyed God, see how they were close to God, and, and they would admire it, and they would even be jealous, and you, I say, I want some of that, whatever that is. And uh, ultimately, it would turn other nations to the worship of the one true God. There was also an internal, fiddling around with our little mosquito thing here, um, there was also an internal uh, purpose for the law, and that was actually to maximize the Israelites' well-being and their enjoyment of God. Now, if you're reading through the law and you stumble on some 
of the, the laws that, that uh, are difficult to understand or they seem offensive, you might wonder, how is this supposed to maximize the Israelites' well-being and their enjoyment of God? Uh, but I've, I've just listed here uh, in this slide just a few of the passages that specifically say that God is giving them the law, is giving them these commandments for their well-being so that they can live a prosperous, full, bountiful life, uh, so that their lives could be joyful and the joy, the joy would actually be in them. Just uh, uh, one of the verses, Deuteronomy 4, chapter 40, says this, keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. And then uh, the verse right before that, verse 39, specifies, acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and the earth beneath. There is no other. And so, so God wants them to have this full, prosperous, joyful, bountiful life, this, good, this wonderful well-being, and he wants them to have the well-being in him. So there's this external purpose of the law that incites nations to admiration, jealousy, and to worship. And then uh, this internal purpose where it maximizes the well-being and enjoyment the people have in God. So that, that's, that's kind of the big picture. Now, to accomplish this, accomplish this, the laws needed to do several things. And if, if, if you're confused at points about the law, go back to this and remember, oh, that's right, that's why the law is here. The, the law, uh, that, that's what this is trying to do. First of all, um, it was intended to prevent idolatrous customs. All the people around them, uh, the Canaanites and all the other people, most of their customs, they, they didn't have this idea of a secular culture that we have today where uh, you, know, you supposedly have no spiritual uh, nature to your customs. But uh, for most of the people all around them, everything they did was spiritual. Everything they did was tied up with the worship of false gods. And so... Uh, God was trying to prevent their, these, uh, them from adopting these idolatrous uh, customs. Uh, Psalm 16 says that the sorrows or the miseries of those who barter for other gods will be multiplied. And so God was trying to spare them that misery uh, that happens when they, they seek other, other false idols. Uh, next, uh, the, these laws needed to restrain the damage of sin. They needed to restrain the damage of sin. And often, here's a little tip for you. When you come across um, a, a passage in, uh, in, the, in the Torah and it, and it doesn't make sense and you're like, what are they even talking about? Most of the time what's happening there is they are, they're, they're, they're giving an example of, they're, they're giving the Israelites a new custom or something that is in contrast to um, the damaging customs of the people around them. Uh, something to restrain sin. We're going to look at a few of those in a, in a minute. Um, next, these laws needed to ensure all kinds of justice for all people. Uh, if you remember, Pastor Steve has been reminding us that there was to be no poor among them. There was, there was to be a way for them to distribute their wealth and their prosperity so that there would be no poor people among them. And there would be justice for everybody, not just for the rich, not just for the wealthy, not just for, for the special. There'd be there would be uh, justice for everybody. Um, there would also be 
Uh, Pastor Steve reminded us recently there were supposed to be no sad people among them, that God was providing for uh, not just their physical well-being, but their emotional well-being and their relational well-being in, in, in everything. Uh, these laws also needed to clarify the distinct identity of the people by provoking their memory, uh, provoking them to remember what God had already done for them and who they really were and how they were this, this, this treasured possession. That's the phrase scripture uses, that these are the treasured, uh, this people are the treasured possession of God. So they needed new laws and new customs that reminded them of that. That was also, that was like kind of the other side of the same coin of uh, preventing idolatrous customs. Um, And above all, maybe most importantly, these laws needed to capture the hearts of the people and point them to the one true living God. So we're going to dive into the scripture right now and see just how uh, these laws, these new customs God was giving them, how they did this, all right? So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 23, if you're not already there, Deuteronomy 23. Um, this first thing the law needed to accomplish, preventing idolatrous customs. Uh, here's just one example of that. Um, in Deuteronomy 23, verse, starting in verse 17, it says, says, no Israelite man or woman is to become a shrine prostitute. You must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or a male prostitute into the house of the Lord or pay any vow because the Lord your God detests them both. Now, on the one hand, you might think this is just God is trying to uh, put an end to prostitution, and that's, that's true, but the focus here is on uh, shrine prostitution. Many of the people around the Israelites, uh, people would go into prostitutes as part of their idolatry, and uh, prostitution was very intertwined with idolatry. And so uh, God wasn't just trying to put an end to prostitution and how that exploited people in their lives, but he was trying to put an end to how that prostitution tied people up in idolatry. So a lot of the customs, a lot of the laws that are given here are for this very purpose of preventing idolatrous customs. The next one, restraining sin's damage. Turn with me to chapter 24 for a minute chapter 24, beginning in verse 5, uh, it says this, If a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to his wife. He has married. Wow, what if we had a law or a custom like that? A year-long honeymoon? Yeah. Going for that. That would be amazing. Um, now, of course, this is, to, this is part of the, um, you know, that, that, that bigger purpose of bringing, maximizing their joy, but this is also restraining sin. Um, uh, this is restraining the damage of warfare. One of the most tragic things, and we hear it happens all the time today, you hear stories like this pretty regularly, a couple gets married, uh, and then he's sent off to Iraq, or he's sent off to Afghanistan and, and uh, dies, or she's sent off to Afghanistan and dies, and uh, they're, they're, they're left, the kids are left uh, fatherless or motherless, and, and, and this was trying to prevent that kind of damage, all right? Keep going in, in verse 6, it says, do not take a pair of millstones, not even the upper one, as security for a debt, because that would be taking a person's livelihood as, as security. So it's acknowledging uh, there's that the, there's this um, uh, practice, people get in debt, that's a reality, but it's trying to limit the damage 
of people getting into debt. There's certain things that can't be taken away from you when you're in debt. The repo man can't come and take certain things from you. Uh, verse 7, if someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and treating or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from among you. Imagine that. Imagine if Europeans in the uh, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries had uh, actually paid attention to this part of Scripture and uh, refused the kidnapping that led to, to so much slavery throughout the world. Um, verse 8, in case, cases of defiling skin diseases, be, fa- be very careful to do exactly as the Levit- Levitical priests instruct you. You must follow carefully what I have commanded them. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam along the way after you came into Egypt. So again, he's trying to get them to practice laws that uh, practice customs that restrain or uh, limit the damage um, of, of disease. Verse 10, when you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered you, to you as a pledge. Stay outside. Let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak. It's, usually it's all the poor person has to keep them warm. Return the cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you, and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. Imagine if we treated debts this way today, but this is restraining or limiting the damage of sin. Um, uh, The next one, um, uh, ensuring all kinds of justice for all. Now, there's lots and lots of scriptures. I'm just giving you a little sample here. Um, But uh, flip back to Deuteronomy 23 for a minute with me. Verse 24 says this, If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in a basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hand, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. So this is providing justice for everybody. Remember, Pastor Steve keeps telling us there isn't just retributive justice where the evil gets punished. That is part of justice, but it's only part. There isn't just... Uh, distributive justice. Wow, how's this going to work? Um, <clears throat> there isn't just uh, retributive ju- or distributive justice where things are shared more equitably. Um, uh, all of that and many more. There's there's many aspects of justice, and they're all important. And uh, look at how this law in Deuteronomy twenty three twenty four does that. Uh, if if a hu- so you're hungry and you're going through somebody's uh, grape vineyard or you're going through their uh, their field, it's okay to pick. The person who owns it doesn't need every last single grape. They don't need every single last uh, bit of grain. Um, so it's okay to pick some and eat it, and that's fine. In fact, that's encouraged. Uh, but it says don't go in with a big basket, a big sickle, and just start uh, t- uh, harvesting for them and then taking it for yourself. So it's protecting both people, both the owner of the plot of land and the person who's hungry. All right, isn't that amazing? that there's, this, there's these laws that are providing for everybody. Go ahead with me back to Deuteronomy 24 and look at verse 14 for a minute. It says, do not take advantage of a hired worker. Wow. I'm just sorry. Isn't that amazing? What if our culture had that as part of our values? Don't take advantage of a hired worker. Huh. That would be amazing. Especially who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner. Yeah, we kind of think here, oh, it's okay. We shouldn't take advantage of American citizens, but it's okay to take advantage of non-American citizens. Here it's saying, don't take advantage um, uh, in your towns. Verse 15, pay them their wages each day before sunset 
because they are poor and they are counting on it. Isn't that amazing? That means there wouldn't be any more of this, what happens here today, where people are, uh, you know, oh, yeah, it's a week before I get paid. I honestly don't know how I'm going to feed my family. Um, that, that wouldn't exist because they'd be paid before sunset. They're counting on it. It says, otherwise, they may cry out to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. Verse 16, parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each is to die for their own sin. A lot of the cultures and uh, customs around the Israelites, if you were guilty of something, your whole family was guilty of something. It didn't matter how little the kids were, and everybody could get put to death, depending on which culture it was. Here it's saying, nope, it's just the person who actually sinned. Verse 17, don't deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. Verse 19, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for who? The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work and all the work of your hands. Verse 20, when you beat the olives from your tree, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for whom? The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Verse 21, when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for whom? the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Yeah, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Amazing laws that are making sure everybody gets taken care of, making sure there's justice, all kinds of justice, all those five different points of justice that Pastor C's been telling us about for everybody. Everybody gets it. It's not just the rich, not just the powerful. Go ahead with me to chapter 25 for a minute. Um, Verse 13 in chapter 25. Do not have two different weights in your bag, one heavy and one light. Do not have two differing measures in your house, one large and one small. You must have accurate and honest weights and measures so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Um, For the Lord your God detests anyone who does these things, anyone who deals dishonestly. What if there was a culture where honesty in dealing with one another's day-to-day interactions was actually woven into the fabric of everything we did. If you didn't have to worry about my neighbor and uh, my neighbor being dishonest or my neighbor not uh, quite, uh, or the person I'm buying something from at the store, not calculating it quite right. What if we didn't even have to worry about that? But there was just honesty woven into everything we did. So ensuring all kinds of justice for all kinds of people. Um, The next one, clarifying a distinct identity. Uh, Much of the law is centered around this. And like I said um, earlier, if you come across a law you don't understand, it's probably a custom, it's probably referring to a custom that we don't get to know about because it doesn't even exist anymore. It's probably referring to a custom of the people around them, an idolatrous custom, and uh, that could lead them astray. Um, And it's, it's trying to help people ground, the Israelites ground their identity in who God is. So here's just one example, verse uh, chapter 24. Look with me back to chapter 24 for a minute. Starting in verse 17, uh, it says, um, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of a widow in pledge. We already went over that. Uh, remember, okay, verse 18, remember you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. 
That is why I am commanding you to do this. So God was continually reminding them who they were, what he'd done for them, how he'd helped them, uh, and, 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 and uh, in that memory that helped bring them back to their identity. So it's very, very important. Um, okay, now the last uh, thing that the law needed to be able to do in order to uh, arouse or incite the admiration and the jealousy of all the people around them, and in order to maximize the joy of the people and their well-being and their enjoyment of God, the last thing it needed to do was to capture the hearts of the people and point them to the one true God. So if you could turn with me to chapter 26, and uh, we're going to find out how God set up the law to capture their hearts. Now, we're, we're going to read the whole chapter. I, I know. It's, you can do it. You can do it. I promise. We're going to get through it. You're going to be alive on the other side. We're going to read the whole chapter, chapter 26. All right? We're going to do it together, and you're going to survive. And look for how God captures the heart. Open up your brain and start thinking about how is God capturing their hearts, all right? Starting in verse 1, chapter 26. When you have entered the land, the Lord your God, when you're entering the land, the Lord your God is giving you, um, uh, set aside the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in the office, in office at the time, I declare to the Lord. So everyone, every Israelite was supposed to do this. Bring a big basket of all their first fruits. First fruits, that means before the rest of, the, of uh, all of the harvest has come in, they're taking the very first of it. Now, let me ask you this question. Why is that risky? What, what's risky about giving God, bringing to the priest, the first fruits? What, what could happen? That's, what if that's all that came up that year? What if a blight comes and destroys the rest of the crop? Okay? What if animals come in and bugs come in and uh, locusts come in and the rest of the crop is gone? And all you had was that little, that first fruits. And God's saying, give it away. Put it in a basket, bring it to the priest, and this is what they're supposed to say. Uh, we're still in the uh, middle of verse 3. I declare to you, I, t- uh, I declare today that the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands, set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Verse 5, then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean. He's referring back to the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Israel. And he went down to into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. So again, it's provoking the memory. They're uh, they're going back over their whole history. Verse 6, But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord. They're remembering how God saved them. The God of our ancestors and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down to him. 
Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. When you've finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, also the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. We see them again. So you may eat in the eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then the Lord uh, God, then the Lord your God, or then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion and have given it to the Levite, the foreigner, and the fatherless, and the widow. According to all you have commanded, I have not turned aside from your commands, nor I have forgotten any of them. I have not eaten any of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I provoked or removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered it any of it to the dead, preventing idolatry. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything you commanded me. Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place. Bless your people Israel and the land you have given us, as you promised on oath to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 16, the Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and all your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord your God uh, and that you walk, that the Lord is your God and you walk, uh, that you will walk in obedience to him, that you will keep his decrees, commands, and laws, that you will listen to him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession, as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord as he promised. All right. So what did you see in there that captures the heart? What, what were they supposed to do? What was supposed to be their common practice that was supposed to capture their hearts? You can go ahead and say it out loud. What, what, what did people see that captured the hearts? Nobody saw anything. <laughs> Here's somebody. They're giving, they're tithing, they're giving their first fruits. And that's really, I didn't pay her to say that. That's really what it is. So to capture hearts and point to the true God, the key, okay? And, and, and guys, if, you, if you're wondering, if you're ever wondering, why is why, why do sometimes or why why do why do why are my feelings for God, my affections for God, so small? Why are my affections for God such a minimal part of my life? Why are there so many other things that capture my desires and my affections besides God? Why is the love of the world? Boy, this is distracting for me and you. Okay, um, we'll figure this out. All right. Um, <laughs> so why, why, why doesn't God have my heart? I might need the, somebody's got the, here, I think we'll just do this. All right. Well, the key, the key, that on, the key, turn that off. <clears throat> the key is to give God your treasure. Give God the treasure of your heart. Um, that is truly the key. When you give God the treasure of your heart, that's what captures your affections. That's what captures your heart for God. And so I want to ask us some questions. Um, do we 
in our lives do we incite others to admiration, even jealousy, and to the worship of the one true God? Do our lives, do our behavior, do the way we act, the way we interact with one another, does that incite other people to admire, to be jealous, and to ultimately worship the one true God? Or, like it says in the prophets, do other people blaspheme God because of what they see in our lives? And do we maximize our enjoyment of God and our well-being in God? Or is it this kind of the side thing that we do? Is this kind of extra thing that we do? Do we maximize our enjoyment of God? I'm going to get a little more specific with these questions. Do we have behaviors and actions in our lives that prevent idolatrous customs? Now, you're going to protest and say, well, there aren't really like little statues anymore that people bow down to, at least not in our culture. But there are idols, aren't there? There are plenty of, and, and the, uh, it's been said before that our hearts are idol-making factories. And if just left to ourselves, we're going to invent a hundred to a thousand new idols. And our culture is constantly pressing in on us with new idols. Not little statues so much anymore, but all kinds of things that want to capture our affections and and cause us to worship them. Do we have things in our lives that prevent idolatry? Do we, in our lives, um, restrain sin's damage? Or are we just kind of letting sin happen (laughs) in our lives? Do we, in our lives, ensure all kinds of justice for all kinds of people? Or when we see somebody suffering and we see somebody going through some sort of injustice, are we like, ah, too bad for them. I guess they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or do we have laws and actions and behaviors that ensure justice for all kinds of people? And do we clarify our distinct identity? And do we, and do we do it by provoking our memory? Or that time, that thing God did in our lives 10 years ago, five years ago, have we just kind of forgotten it? Or do we remember it? All right? And ultimately, do we let our hearts be captured and let our hearts, uh, let our lives point to the one true God? So, as you're thinking about that, there, there is a, uh, something that we do um, as, as, a, as a group, as a community that does all of these things. And, uh, and that's actually communion. I want us to think about that for a minute. Um, communion. Uh, we're going to observe that in a moment. And uh, communion actually is intended to prevent idolatrous customs. Communion started out, this is a, Jesus instituted this the night he was betrayed. Uh, and he when he instituted it, he, this was a Passover supper. And Passover, if you remember, the, everything about Passover was to say there is one true God and it's not all of these other idols of Egypt. It's not all these other idols uh, of the people uh, around. 
Um, there's, there's one true God. And so then Jesus took the Passover supper and he deepened it and he amplified it uh, and, and brought a whole new level of meaning for us. Uh, but that's part of what happens when we share in the table. Um, communion helps us restrain sin's damage. It says in, uh, Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that we are to examine ourselves when, before we take communion. We examine ourselves to see if we're really in Christ or not. Um, are you... Uh, are you letting Christ examine your heart as we prepare to share in this together? Uh, Communion also ensures all kinds of justice for all kinds of people. If you read the context of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul explains, so, so there was a situation in Corinth. There were the rich Corinthians and there were the poor Corinthians. They were Christ, they, uh, there had been a huge revival in Corinth, lots of new Christians but the rich and the poor would gather together to share communion. The rich would bring these big uh, baskets full of picnic food, and the poor would sit there hungry. And the, the, the rich would gorge themselves, and then they'd, ha- they'd share the elements together while the poor looked on. And Paul said, that is absolutely not okay. Uh, when you come together, um, <clears throat> you can't despise the poor but in fact, you need to share with them. So communion was actually intended originally, the way it was set up, the way it was instituted, was to remind us that we're all equal before the cross. doesn't matter if you were rich, if you were wealthy, if you were poor. doesn't matter what your background was, if you're in the marginalized or if you're in the center, uh, if you're the, in the majority and in the powerful, or if you're in the weak and the marginalized. But communion brings us, brings us all together. And uh, communion is also supposed to remind us of what God has done for us so it can clarify our distinct identity. Jesus, anyone remember why Jesus said to do this? He said, do this in remembrance of him. Do this. So every time we do it, we're supposed to remember what he's done for us. And lastly, communion is intended to capture our hearts. So when you see this piece of bread, and you see that it's broken, and you take that broken piece, that's supposed to remind you that Jesus' body was broken, and it was broken for you. It was broken for me. All the sin and the punishment that we deserved was placed on Jesus when he was on the cross, and his body was broken so that we might be made whole. When we see this little bit of juice, that's supposed to remind us of the blood that Jesus shed. And not just shed like someone, like a persecuted victim. Shed for you and for me. This blood was poured out for you and me. And because his blood was poured out, we can be restored to God, we can be saved, we can know God, we can walk with God, we can spend an eternity with him in heaven because he poured out his blood and he had his body broken for us. And guys, that's supposed to capture your heart. If you 
really knew, if you really comprehended, if you're not just your brain, but if your heart really understood the lengths to which God has gone to rescue you and me from our own sin, from eternal hell, from the damage of our own sin, if you, if you and I really grasped that, that would capture our hearts. And yet, so often, we just do this mindlessly. We do this, oh yeah, it's another communion Sunday, I'll just stick it in my mouth, yeah, put it down my throat. This is intended to capture your heart. And possibly, if it hasn't captured your heart, it's possible it hasn't captured your heart because you haven't brought to him your treasure. I'm not just talking about your money, though that's, that's, always, that's always a good thing because when you give him your money, that like forces your affections to get in line. Uh, there, you probably all heard the funny story about the missionary. I guess it's not funny, but uh, missionary who uh, um, he, he stood in front of a church and he said, don't pray for me. Everyone thought, oh, that's kind of strange. Every other missionary always says, pray for me. I will really covet your prayers. He said, don't pray for me. Instead, send me your money and send me your children. And uh, of course, it sounds like he's going to kidnap or something. But what he meant by that was he, this missionary is very smart. He knew that if they sent his ch- their children down, you know, for short-term missions or something, or uh, if they sent him his money, he knew those would be the people who'd be praying for him. They wouldn't just be the people who'd be like, oh, yeah, we'll be praying for you, okay, and then whoosh, totally forget, all right? Um, so it, does, it is important to give your treasure, but I'm not just talking about your physical treasure. I'm talking about the treasure of your heart. And so this morning, if I could have the worship team coming up, if I could have uh, elders and ministry coordinators come on up, we're going to get ready to serve communion.